Hello everyone, this is Shweb Karn here at Anti Small Talk, and today in our collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio, we have the wonderful teacher, author, and all-round legend, Sarah Davis joining us. Hello Sarah, and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Hello, and how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Absolutely amazing. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, we need to shout out Anne-Louise Jordan, because mm-hmm. Anne-Louise made this collaboration happen. She said to me a long time ago... Oh, thank you so much. It is absolutely amazing. And it's always a, a pleasure to be able to talk to yourself. And it's a pleasure to be able to talk to Annalise, actually, as well. So absolutely. No, thank you very much. And a big shout out to her, of course. And Louise is a legend and she's a legend. There's no worse to describe her. Nope, she is. It's just a genuine legend. And absolutely. like I said, I am still adamant that I need to obviously go and observe her classroom. I will quite mm. happily take, you know all of the necessary equipment to to go and explore the beach and mm. you know all the other places as well yeah. <laughs> she's in madrid isn't she the one thing i love about Anne louise and i love I, I love her story as well the fact that i just think she still takes that scotland with her and that scottish authenticity and someone i'd love to see teach you never cross an angry scottish person like you should never cross an and, and, and do you know what the, the fact that she's managed to retain that accent is just absolutely exquisite so oh. Sarah okay we have an enormous audience here on anti-small talk slash teacher hog radio for our audience who is Sarah Davis okay well it, it, obviously it's, a, it's always a very interesting question mm. to answer like you know here's yourself I am a current well I'm currently an associate assistant head teacher over at a multi-academy trust I I've been teaching now. I think I graduated in two. Yeah, I got my NQT in 2015. I was a bit late to the game, really. Oh, but I am also the author of Talking About Oracy. Can't forget the book, obviously. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I just completely forgot. Oh, yeah, and I wrote a book. Mm -hmm. But no, um, I was a bit late to the game. So I actually passed my NQT. I decided to go towards the teaching career um, after the birth of my my firstborn in uh, 2011. And I do remember, and the reason that, that, that I recollect this story so well is because of the fact that I'd, I'd pretty much a jack of all trades, a master of none, um, yeah. or, you know, at least subpar at some. And I, I've done everything. And when I mean everything, I mean, I have, I have sold windows and doors. Um, it, was a, it was an interesting week. Obviously, you know, PPA calls I've, I've done those ones for a bit as well that was an interesting couple of weeks you know I've done a recruitment consultant quite a lot of different roles really that, that gave me a broad sense and a broad overview but then when I when I had my firstborn I was uh, I thought right okay well I want to get into education now it was just myself and him and I thought right I, I need to actually start creating some kind of legacy that you know for, for him to be proud of so to speak and mm. um of you know I, I I graduated I had a bit of an interesting time at university that that obviously meant that I didn't graduate with what I wanted to so I actually went in with the HLTA qualification which was done through the lifelong learning so I was doing that I was I was raising my son and I was very you know I was doing two days a week voluntarily in schools and I'll always the, the only reason I remember it is because I applied to be a teacher I applied to do the ITT courses and I applied with some universities and a particular university that shall re- forever remain nameless actually um, <laughs> sent me sent me an, an email back well no sent me a letter and said that under no circumstances would they ever consider me because of obviously my, my grades and everything else and it was just the way that it was worded I was like, okay. I mean, the irony of it is, is I have actually taught teachers to teach with that 
particular university mm. now. But I'll always remember that because um, one of the, you know, another university, Edge Hill, actually turned around and said, well, I mean, we don't usually, we'll only take you if you do a master's. So, you know, me, I, I love a good challenge. I was like, yeah, that'll do. So like two essays and a two hour long interview later, I got accepted for a master's course. So I actually had to do my master's in order to do a PGCE which was definitely an, a different kind of way into teaching. It gave me the resilience and it gave me the perseverance to continue with it. And I think those are the two main qualities that you definitely need in teaching, especially these days. Definitely, definitely. I think uh, resilience and perseverance are really, really important, aren't they? So, Sarah, okay, so we've got, uh, you've got you did loads of jobs before you arrived into mm. teaching. Like, do you think, this is a complete off-the-cuff question, do you think, and I speak to many, many teachers who, who have families and started families, do you think, having a family positive and negative impact on your sort of work-life balance because that's something that everyone's kind of struggling with aren't they their work-life balance spending more time on other people's kids than their own so do you think it has a positive and negative impact do you know it's I think it's a question as a parent that I constantly ask myself mm. you know because as I said I was I was doing a master's course so two nights a week I was actually I, I live in Oldham I was driving up to Armskirk so I was working all day and then two nights a week I was actually driving up to do a course uh, so you know there are constant times where you do get and, and parent guilt is a thing where mm-hmm. you're constantly thinking and it's like you said well hold on a minute I'm spending more time with other children my own children and I, I suppose that the one biggest thing that you hope is that what you are instilling in your child is a conscious work ethic but one that not necessarily says oh well you've got to work ridiculously hard all the time but more like one that says you know what you can be whatever you want to be you can do whatever you want to do Mm. you've got to be prepared for the fact that there will be bumps in the road but I think in order for him to see I mean he's only 10 now so I can't gauge it off that much but Mm. I think in order he's been there throughout the the, the hard times throughout you know throughout the best times throughout the jobs throughout the and he's been able to see that that no matter what like you know and, and hopefully he's instilled in him that as long as you you keep going and you try your best then that's all that anyone can ever ask of you really that as long as you, you give it as much as you can but then when you talk about like you said work-life balance I think it's very hard I think you'll never be able to fully grasp the two you'll never be able to fully balance the two anyone that can do clearly has more of an established routine than anyone that you know what I mean because there's mm-hmm. always going to be something that will throw something off there's always going to be whether it be at school or whether it be at work or whether it be at home and I think acceptance is a big key to the work-life balance I think having the ability to to slightly not necessarily to not alter your plans but to accept okay well hold on a minute I've got parents evening tonight for example right okay so if I'm doing parents evening tonight okay tomorrow night we're going to watch a film and you know what I'm going to keep my phone to the side and I'm not going to look at it and I'm not going to do anything else and I'm you know and I think it's very much a case of establishing when you're present in the moment and I am Mm -hmm. an absolute nightmare at weekends or at any time where I've got the opportunity I have to be out and about I have to mm. you know we have to go for walks we have to go cycling and I, I think it's just making sure the thing with work-life balance with me is I accept the fact that it will ne- never be perfect but as long as we've got those times where I'm present and in the moment for my family 
mm. then that's all that they can ever like you know it's the same with my husband that's all that we can ever ask of each other really of course and I think one thing that's really keen I picked out immediately what you said about the sort of teacher guilt and also parent guilt you know mm. I can imagine that works for, for someone who's a carer you know I care for my mother the guilt you have of not spending enough time with them and spending more time on one and the other and finding that balance. It's a, it's a very difficult scale, isn't it? I think many people, particularly early in their teaching career, they're very much driven and focused on that, on that role as a teacher. But when you have got children, you have got care responsibilities, things change. You know, I think people's work life patterns, their sort of uh, behavior, their, their, their attitude towards their role, that changes significantly, I think as well. It's such an interesting one, though, because I mean, even on the on the flip side of it, when you look at, because obviously, I, I've got I've got the kids, and you've got, you know, you're a carer, and and it's like we said, we we have those guilts because we have someone else that that requires our attention, and I actually mm -hmm. think. On the other side of that, it is dangerous when you don't have those kind of situations because we you know, at all time have these contributing factors that turn around and say, no, hold on, you have to switch off from this now. And, you know, when we talk about things like teacher burnout, that's when you've got time to do such a thing, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's on the flip side of it, isn't it? If you've got a, a couple of hours spare and say, you know, you didn't fancy watching a film on TV or there's no Netflix series that you can catch up on or anything, you know, or you've just read your last book. There are some that, you know, you begin to think, well, hold on, really, I could be marking my books now. Do you know where all of a sudden you've got, and I, I think it's very much, it's just, it's about establishing boundaries with yourself as well and recognizing mm. that sometimes even though you might think oh well I'm going to take some work home this weekend let it stay in the bag let it do the walk of shame into school the next you know on the Monday because actually that's that's the whole thing about when especially when you've either when you've got someone to care for or, or when you're not you've, you've got to work smart not hard no mm. one should be praising the person that stays in the school the longest you know we should be praising the people that are, are more likely to share their their quick tips and their strategies do you know what I mean to, to yes. try and accept the fact that we are a human we're human beings it's amazing when 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 students grasp this idea as well mm, absolutely absolutely one thing that I I've always when people have said to me you know work smarter not hard I've always looked at them up and down thinking dude or person <laughs> what are you how what do you mean by that what do you mean by that and I think as I've gained perspective and a lot of that comes from tragedies at home difficulties in my personal life having to care for someone the perspective I've gained at home that's kind of given me the opportunity to move away from work take time away from it take a step back and realize that I don't need to work. I don't need to work into my weekend or I can mm -hmm. spend an extra half an hour or can go in half an hour early or finish the day half an hour later to make sure I've completed. You're never, I think with teaching, it's always, there's always going to be something on the to-do list or you must have done. There will be something in your planner, a deadline. There'll be something coming up. So I think it's really important to balance, find the right time, balance home and your personal life. And if you are struggling, I've, I've always advocated this, Find a school that does support work-life balance. That's what I always try to aspire for. If you find a school that matches your ethos and supports you with your home life, then you're in the right place. If you have a school that's very much focused on constant work and piling on workload, you're not going to benefit and the ones you care about are not going to benefit either. Well, that's it, isn't it? And it's about, it's like you said, it's about finding that balance from it all. And it's, mm. it's about sharing any kind of tips and techniques that you could you can pick up along the way. I mean, I love you know I've, I've got kind of like my simple rules now and I think as I've kind of progressed 
up any kind, you know, up any ladders or any leadership ladders or any leadership scale. It's become more and more important that I do separate slightly and that I do have that time and make sure that I'm following not necessarily certain rules, but but definitely certain procedures or, or, or certain ways of doing things. So it's like once a week, I will just kind of go, all right, okay, it's been a day, leave your bag. Obviously, that you know, there's absolutely nothing important in my bag anyway, but leave mm-hmm. your bag, get your phone, get your car keys, and just, just walk out. And the first time that you do it, you feel like a rebel. The first time that you do it, you feel like someone's about to rugby tackle you out of the front door. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it, it's the same when, you know, when you make that decision as well. Okay, so once a week, I am, I'm going to leave at the time that the, the school allows me to. You know, mm-hmm. so obviously we've all got that certain times that, that you're allowed to leave. Okay, so once a week, I'm going to leave at that time. And when you do, you, you're walking around like you're about to be hunted off Jurassic Park or mm-hmm. something like some raptors are going to come out and start to maim you. But actually what that does is it's you know it's 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 taking those little steps that make the biggest difference i mean we talk about well-being and what we've got to be cautious of is that well-being can't just be an adjective that we throw around for the sake of it mm. it's it's about being able in ourselves to have that that positive kind of or at least to understand our own bodies our own emotions our own ways of dealing with things and accepting the fact that ours might be different from someone else no, it's fascinating here insight on work-life balance and well-being. Honestly, sir, we're going to get some tips from you just after a few really important messages from our sponsors. Welcome back, everyone, to Shweb Khanu, the wonderful Sarah Davis. Sarah, what tips do you have to balance work life? Because I like to think I can, you know, turn to more experienced members of staff. And I speak to more experienced members of staff. They give me a bit of guidance and support and might have NQTs listening. So what sort of guidance and support or tips would you give for members of staff trying to gain a sense of work life balance, a greater sense of work life balance? The one that I love the most is um, when you're writing your to-do list. I love a good to-do list. There's mm-hmm. something so gratifying about being able to highlight all of the things that you've done. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, shout out to everyone that's like carrying around about 40 different highlighters because it is just it's just the business isn't it when you've got to have that many highlighters in your life of course um, Sarah, Sarah if you don't hoard stationery you're not a team oh, go away get off, my, get off my video channel go goodbye the YPO order came past me on the motorway and it was like you know do you remember when you were younger and you was like oh the uh, the Eddie Stobart's um the Eddie Stobart lorries they used to in in the northwest the Eddie Stobart lorries used to all have different names so when you were younger you'd be looking for the different names and you'd be like oh that's incredible now the YPO order comes past and you're like oh that might be coming to me it'll be amazing but it's just oh and I love a good flare pen but it's it's what I've learned is that a to-do list, don't write it in your planner. Now, hear me out on this one, because the first time that I kind of, and I'm, I'm trademarking this as well, 
because I, I tried to explain it to someone okay. and this is just off my own thoughts so so bear with me. if in your planner you've got designated period one period two period three period four period five if you write your to-do list on your planner and people might be like mm, don't know what she's talking about but if you write it in your planner what you're doing even subconsciously is giving it a specific time period that you've mm. got to do it in. Yep. So if you do not succeed in doing that period one, you get this sudden sense of failure or your sudden fear of that you're not achieving everything that you set out to do. So that like one of the, and I found that from doing it and I was like, hold on a minute, I'm writing my to-do list in my planner, but I'm writing it on the spaces where I've got free. So on my PPAs. And if they're not done in that PPA, I'm like, oh, it's been an ineffective PPA. I could have like, you know, saved the world and solved world peace. And I'd still mm. be like, yes, but I have not put this order in for 20 Prit sticks or something. You know, and, and it's it's very much a case of that is one way that you can solve it like you know writing something as simple as just writing a to-do list but on something that says this is what I'm going to do this day as opposed to this is what I'm going to do this hour and, and keeping yourself open to the fact that that might move on to the next day but it's like you said it it doesn't matter at the of end course. of the day it, you know it's it's still going to be there in the morning of course <laughs> like, Absolutely. And one thing, Sarah, we've got to realise, myself and yourself, you know, we've got, and I think you're in your fifth or sixth year of teaching, I think so, mm-hmm. and I, uh, something like that, and I'm in my fifth or yeah. sixth year as well. Between us, let's, let's just round it up, you know, 12, 12, 14 years we've got between us. This is experience talking. You know, we've been on the other side where we've marked piles of books at the weekend and not had a work-life mm-hmm. balance. I think having that experience of knowing what bad time management or bad well-being is that's when you begin to adapt your own practice and like you say create those healthy boundaries around yourself and realize that you know working till two o'clock in the morning it isn't good for my health or no. it's not having the the impact on my students is in fact it's having a you know a counterintuitive impact on me and my students so i think a lot of that comes from experience and a lot of our nqts who i know many of them listen to our podcast and our radio channel as well establishing those boundaries is so vital isn't it Oh, so, so important. What is better for your students? The fact that they've got, there is, like, you know, the, the fact that they, let's face it, they're constantly nagging you four days, like, you know, four hours after your assessment. Have you mm-hmm. marked it? But what, what is better for your students? The fact that you're able to provide them with a marked piece of work the next day, or the fact that you're able to provide them with quality first teaching because you're actually mm-hmm. in the right frame of mind to do so and you're not absolutely exhausted. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a case of, like, you know, it's a case of slowing down to to make sure that you've you're keeping it consistent and you're keeping at something that makes you a an an excellent practitioner Mm. and that's the the most important the excellent practitioners aren't the people that are constantly throwing out more marked pieces of work Mm. and you know i'm I'm currently i'm an english teacher with two year 11 classes in the middle of a pandemic i know exactly how it feels at the Mm. moment I'm, i'm like an assessment factory but and, and, and this is what I mean, they will. And unfortunately, it, it leads you, if you go into a kind of a, a situation, if you go into a class like that, that is what they'll expect for the rest of the year. Then that's, that's the kind of thing that they'll expect. Well, I, you know, we sat this assessment yesterday. Why isn't it marked? Of course. And uh, you're actually right. Absolutely. I've done that before. <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have marked something. And then you set the boundary really high. Yeah, and then when you're not able to mark something as quick, they frown at you thinking, dude, what's going on? You're right. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it, it that way, actually. Well, this this is the big shock. And this is it goes back to that idea of the fact that 
that we're human. And and mm. this is a, a huge surprise that we're not robots that just mark for a living. Like, you know, I mean, this is this is absolutely human. And it's like, we, we've got students asking this when they've just sat the assessment period five, and this is period one the next day. And, mm. and so you're almost, and I think it's, we talk about establishing classroom expectations. And I think part of establishing classroom expectations is really ensuring that the students are aware of the fact that actually that marking needs to be of a of a, a high standard it needs to be of a high quality and quite often in order for it to be high standard and higher quality we want to be doing things like we want to make sure it's moderated we want to make sure it's standardized we want to be having those professional dialogues that make sure that the feedback that we give which in essence that's the most important part even if it's just whole class feedback but that the feedback that we give is one that's really really going to help them to progress as opposed to just a tokenistic expression of sitting their assessment and getting some data on a sheet absolutely absolutely and it's it can be very arbitrary you know i'm not sure what marking policy your school has and you know i don't like marking i know people look at me like what are you talking about you're a teacher how can you not like marking <laughs> like, you know when i started when we started teaching it was the www and ebi Oh. It was two wishes and a star, whatever it was. And then it I went, feel like it's been everything. Every fad. Every, we're going to talk about fads as well. I promise you we're going to talk about fads. <laughs> every fad that's been cycled, recycled, like they're talking about the return of visio, audio, kinesthetic learning. All these ideas, and they come back around and around and around. Here today, gone tomorrow. Like to, it's important today, but tomorrow it's not. And no discredit to them. But like Rosenshine's principles, and don't get me wrong, we do them naturally anyway. But what impact is it having on my context? For example, Sarah, if I've got a class of 30 boys, I'm going to stereotypically say boys, because during my NQT, I had 34 boys in a class once with five TAs and two, two, two members of senior leadership. So it's a very tough class, very difficult part of the, the country, very deprived part of the country. I cannot use Rosenshine's principles in that lesson. I can't use retrieval practice. Those ideas are fantastic. Don't get me wrong. They've got their own time, their own place, and they've probably worked somewhere else. I remember what it was. Was it pink makes you think? Honestly, where is the evidence behind this? Is it in Finland? Is it in Taiwan? Where is the evidence behind? It? If it's not like if it's not evident backed by evidence, why would a teacher want to adapt? Why would we want to waste extra time doing things that are like we say arbitrary and not impactful in the classroom? Do you know what? And I think it, it's such an interesting, especially when we look at different teaching and learning approaches and we look at, at different strategies that we can incorporate in the classroom to really to hone in on this quality first teaching. And you mentioned Rosenshine, you mentioned retrieval practice. And I do use like I, I do use quite a lot of retrieval practice in my um, in my work. I mean, it might be because of obviously, like we said before, the context just today, we've been looking at something similar because we were revisiting our inspector, you know, we were revisiting an inspector call. So we were revisiting knowledge that had already been acquired. So I needed to gauge where they were up to with it. And in circumstances, I think what will, what, what, is so important with things like this is that actually we we probably do a lot of it subconsciously Absolutely. so it's like you said in, about this whole putting a name to it you know we're using things like retrieval practice we we do it you know what I mean but we don't actually it doesn't have this label attached Absolutely. to it we constantly you know when you think about connecting the learning so when you're talking about okay today we're doing this and um one of the best things that i like you know one of the easiest way that i've ever had the curriculum explained to me is the ability for students and teachers to be able to explain why this and why now and in order to do that 
you know, it's very much a case of, all right, so what knowledge have we got before? What is our aim from this? And it's just, it's this idea of understanding how we get from point A to point B Mm. is about how we can approach our understanding and our pedagogical knowledge. And you're right, there's so many different strategies. And one of the biggest things that I I, I mention in my book is the fact that and one of the reasons that I was adamant to incorporate a lot of case studies from a lot of different settings and a lot of different like, you know, age ranges is because I wanted to reiterate any kind of advice that I give. It's quite simply that. It's advice. It's mm. supporting ideas as opposed to saying this is this is the way that it is. This is the way that it's going to go. Well, no, actually, because contextualization is one of the biggest parts of how we ensure that our curriculum works for us. And it's it's how we ensure that the learning that taking place works for us. Because, you know, you, you make the decision on how you're approaching a subject based on your knowledge of the class and quite Mm. rightly so and that's what we come from it and I think it's everything's very cyclical in the fact that you know everything does come and it goes and it comes again and it goes again and sometimes it's got a different name to it but the the biggest principle is and it's like you said before about the experience it's about going okay I did this and it worked really well and actually it was effective in making sure that that knowledge was was processed properly and went into the long-term memory so that is something that I can do again in a class that is suitable for it do you know mm-hmm. what I mean it's not something that you trademark and, and throw in every single class but it's about what you acquire in your toolbox do you know what I mean yeah. it's not a case of having a Swiss army knife and saying that this is going to solve all your problems it's you know I was always I've always been a gaffer tape like you know a gaffer tape girl so my my first car my Fiat Cinquanto was practically held together with gaffer tape that's okay so to speak but had I have had the right kind of knowledge had I have right had the right kind of tools to support me I probably would have been able to well, I mean, I'm, I'm reaching high, but but I probably would have been able to fix it more efficiently. But instead, I was patching everything over with this one piece of equipment that I had. And I think that's the that that's the biggest thing to take out of it. It's about contextualization, like you said. It's about knowing what you've got, what works well, how you can deliver it, and and that students are well aware of why you're doing it, and and why you're doing it right at that moment. Of course, absolutely. And I think that it's it's tough being a research lead in a school. I've never had the privilege of that position, but you're not just a research lead, are you? You're also doing the pastoral side of things. You're also doing, you know, detentions. You're also doing duties. You're also mm-hmm. teaching as well. Being a research lead in a school, it's a very difficult job. And especially now when you've got research coming from this angle and that angle yes. and this person and that person and this fad is in Ofsted are calling for this but also in the background on edu twitter and places like that there's loads of other ideas going around so, like, i remember knowledge organizers a couple of years ago i think it was last year or year before knowledge everyone was talking about them knowledge organizers yeah. but they seem to have like disappeared but if we tear that apart that idea knowledge organizer there's got to be something good in there maybe a student took a knowledge yeah. organizer away or a group and they thought they're wonderful and they love having everything on one sheet and they did amazing with them maybe they did but again it swings round and roundabouts i think one the during my pgc there was this big discussion this is 2015 16 learning objectives versus versus learning outcomes versus <laughs> learning questions i think it was and it was i might have been in the same one <laughs> it was walt versus wilf and all, yeah honestly at the end of it i remember leaving the lecture thinking 
what learning actually took place in that lecture when we were talking about this makes you wonder is it going to create more work for our staff is it going to have an impact on our students and that is the most important thing and the context is vital hypothetically speaking sarah i couldn't walk into your year 11 class and teach it the way you do you couldn't mm-hmm. walk into my year 9 re class for example and teach it the way i do pedagogy oh, no. is beautiful because it's individualized yeah 100% yeah and and this is why i think we were kind of well i'd, I'd like to think especially with you know when we've got the rise of the early careers framework and we've got the development of all of these you know the the really honing in on on the recruitment and retention side of it which hopefully will take enough traction to to support our our new teachers no i definitely agree we've just got a few messages from our sponsors we're back for part three Welcome back, everyone. This is part three of Anti Small Talk slash Teacher Hug Radio. We've got the wonderful Sarah Davis joining us. Sarah, do you ever worry about your teaching becoming stagnant? Because I know many teachers do. They're always conscious of not adapting new research and new ideas into their practice. I'd just like to have your insight on that. We talk about being a learning leader, being a research leader in schools, but actually I always live in fear of my teaching becoming stagnant. Do you know what I mean? Especially when, let's face it, that, you know, I've got two year 11 classes that, you know, have the same, the same ability pretty much every day. Back to not necessarily back to back, but quite often. In essence, I could be repeating the exact same information twice. But what actually happens is I might utilize some of the same resources, but actually they're delivered slightly different ways whether that's because I've evaluated from or reflected from the first time that I've done it and I've adapted and developed on it or whether it's because like we said before and like we mentioned about knowing our students and understanding the context that we've adapted something to more suit the needs of and the you know and the retention of a the other cohort but it's the fact that we are doing that because otherwise it becomes very monotonous and teaching should should never be just completely monotonous and I don't I think if you're not prepared to learn then you're not prepared to teach definitely and one thing that I also picked up on Sarah whilst you were speaking is there seems to be these neat binaries don't there between engagement and learning yeah don't try and say there seems to be these neat binaries that exist that the the two can't work together mutually then they're mutually oh yeah can't be joined together we can't have a fun lesson because they're not learning Mm -hmm. the word (laughs) fun is banished isn't it from education it's totally taboo such a swear word isn't it allowing children to actually be children you know in a classroom i think those binaries they're, they're so outdated and again it's this sort of like this Govian, you know, I'm going to mention it, you know, I'm going to mention it, Govian. <laughs> He's going to go there. Absolutely, this Govian <laughs> view of education, you know, this idea that a lot of people endorse it, this idea that learning is static. And you're right, I'm really self-conscious and really concerned that my pedagogy, my pedagogy might be out of date, that my mm. teaching and the things that I'm doing in my classroom are not, you know, moving on with the times. Remember the overhead projectors? Yeah. The light bulbs. They used to make a. They used to have a squeaky wheel when you wheel them down the the corridor. Oh yeah. They were wonderful, weren't they? We had a teacher at old school, and he used to have an overhead projector. He was a fantastic maths teacher. I've told this story a thousand times. He just used the overhead projector, nothing else. Then PowerPoint came along, and Sarah, his pedagogy was based on 
him demonstrating. And you're the visualizer. It was the first visualizer, was let's be honest. Oh, yeah, no, of course it was. It is the first visualizer. He was told to transfer all his lessons onto PowerPoint. Oh. Within a month, he left teaching. And this was a teacher of 30 years' experience. He's had seen numerous cohorts. He was in senior leadership. He was a wonderful teacher, Sarah. Absolutely wonderful. We've got to find beauty in existing structures and apply them, but also adapt our pedag pedagogy as we go along. All of these skills, all of these strategies uh, are coming back. And I definitely think that, you know, whether it's opening a Pandora's box or not, people are now more open to a lot of alternative or different strategies, you know, to approach learning. And I, I think, you know, like I said about it being a Pandora's box, it might be a good thing, it might be a bad thing, depending on how you perceive it. And I think if you kind of go in at this uh, a wrong angle so if you go in say for example at a leadership angle that starts dictating right okay that you need to do this and then you need to do that and then you must have this then it does become very generic it, it does become very overworked it, it curdles so mm -hmm. to speak and it doesn't have the same effect to it but something just as simple as sitting there with a visualizer it really takes it takes the learning to where the learning needs to be. Absolutely. And it's, it's just, it's you and it's a pen and it's your students and it's having those discussions and taking what you've got and and making it work for you and making it work best for you. And whether it's a visualizer, whether it is a PowerPoint or whether it's just, you know, a Teams call, it's whatever works best for you and your students. No, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Sarah, I'm just conscious of time. Now. I want to talk about your two big passions, okay? So, Sarah, okay. I think we connected. I listened to a podcast that you did. It was on Anne Louise's website. And I, I just clicked onto it at random, and I listened to your podcast. You're very, very passionate about oracy, okay? For our audience who don't know what this is, okay, what is oracy and why is it important? So oracy is all about the different components that are attached to communication. You know, if you think about the, the key triad, you've got your literacy, oracy and your numeracy. Mm. Now, oracy, despite it being one of the key you know, parts of the triad, it's something that we often forget or not necessarily forget. Perhaps we don't give it the credit that it deserves. And the majority of that is down to, you know, the, we talk about this being assessment driven. We talk about being in a society that is very much data driven and we have to be able to measure impact. Now, oracy that it itself is all about the key components of communication and how exactly we communicate with other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's all about understanding the fact that it's more than just what you say. So we talk about, you know, in, in my book, talking about oracy, clearly I was having an, an excellent day with the title for that one. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's all about, you know, understanding the physical skills. So it's about being able to read people's body language. It's about being able to measure the tone of voice. And this is why oracy is so important to me. It's the fact that these are life skills. These aren't just skills that are going to get you into your GCSEs. These are skills that are going to, you know, in essence, they're going to save relationships. Absolutely. They're going to end relationships that might not be needed to happen. Mm -hmm. They're going to to get you jobs they're going to you know it, it's going to it's going to give you the strength to to do things that you might not want to do it's going to give you the strength to to make those decisions to and it's it's such an important skill to have and it's things like you know so it's things like your physical skills so your tone of voice and we talk about being able to read body language being able to understand that 
you know, that maybe I'm fine can be taken in 400 different contexts. And it's okay is another one that could be very dangerous if you're talking on a relationship point of view, because mm. it's not okay. Yep. So that one's a clear, obvious one, though, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And then it's, you know, and we, we go off that, it's, it's your linguistic skills. So it's what's said and how we say it. And it's how we adapt what we're saying to different audiences. And I think when we're looking at, particularly when we're looking at teenagers, so there's a very, very, clear divide in you know in primary school there's a very distinct divide between an adult and a child so an adult a, a child is able to to understand the fact that the vocabulary perhaps need to be different because this person's really tall and this person may have wrinkles obviously not all mm-hmm. but this person you know may be really tall and maybe you know and there's this almost this clear divide between the two but as teenagers become almost genetically mutated to six four and then as you know we get into college and beyond and and then you know as we get into professions especially those professions or those situations where perhaps our, our bosses or our leaders might actually be younger than us we need to know that our vocabulary and the way that we speak plays an important part in how we're perceived and it's you know and that ties in nicely with the cognitive skills and understanding those behind it and of course the social and emotional skills it's it's about understanding what we're trying to say and having that confidence with it and and being perceived in a way that makes us effective communicators and I just oracy is is so important because so many skills not necessarily neglect it because I think in essence all schools teach it in a way but so many skills deny the explicit teaching of oracy mm. because of the fact that it doesn't tie in nicely with these summative GCSE assessments and I remember the exam boards obviously released the data that, you know, in order to, to support, you know, schools because of the obviously the, the impact of COVID, then what we'll be doing is we'll be removing the recorded part of the spoken language component. And I remember just having discussions and the discussions were, were all kind of like, oh, well, is that it? And the other half of it was like, well, oh, thank God, because these are the bane of my existence and these are an absolute nightmare. And I was like, you know what? They, they were a nightmare for me as well. And then I was thinking, oh, my gosh, they should not have been a nightmare for me these are the opportunities that our students have to actually interact whether it be through speeches whether it be through debate whether it be through questioning or discussion these are the opportunities that our students have to articulate their point of view and then when you look at it well hold on a minute I returned back from maternity leave and I remember I returned back and this is my youngest and we I joined a year 11 class and absolutely phenomenal um absolutely adored them to pieces and I remember having a discussion with them and they were like well what's an interview do you know what I mean and it was simple things like well I've never had an interview before and I was like oh my god like you know this is something that they need like you know I remember I think I just threw down the Christmas Carol textbook and I was like hold on we've got to stop right here because you know and I've had these discussions with teachers at colleges as well we can teach them can teach them academic rigor until they're blue in the face we really can and we can make them have academic writing that is absolutely exquisite and it's it's absolutely phenomenal that's great but one of the questions that a lot of colleges asked as well was well why weren't these universities taking our students mm-hmm. our students are top performing students they're, they're getting these you know amazing results and it's the same for us they're, they're top performing why they're, they're getting the amazing results but why aren't they taking them and it was the interview part it was the fact that 
they weren't able to communicate they weren't able to get their, their point across and it's like imagine whenever we go to interviews now we're still learning we're still adapting we're still having to rely on these oracy skills mm-hmm. to to help us and to to get us to where we want to go so uh, yeah i think it's yeah i feel i feel quite strongly about oracy really <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right and one thing that i've realized as well especially when obviously pre-covid post-covid things are very different it's on mm-hmm. zoom and teams and things like that I'm, I'm writing these references for these students for UCAS as they prepare yeah. to go to university. You write things like, oh, they're a conscientious student. They're hardworking. They're very well-spoken. But they've got stage fright. They will not go and talk in front of their peers in, in, in the sixth form common room or raise their voice when they want to be heard. You're right. It's that etiquette. They just don't seem to have it, a lot of our young people. And, yeah. you know, dare I even say, sometimes the classroom and the classroom environment we often have students who simply shy away. They sit in the corner and in the world that we live in and the sort of like interactions that we have day to day, whether you're working in a supermarket or you're a teacher, you are going to be talking to people. You are going to have to read body language and tone. How many times have you been sent emails with the wrong tone? Or oh my conscious of the tone of how you speak to someone? I'm consciously reflecting, but our young people unless we start training them to have these interactions, they will simply either shy away from them or become anxious at any time they have to speak up or hold a conversation that matters. And dare I even say, you know, open up about things that are affecting them. Well, that's that's the most important one as well, because we talk about the social and emotional side and it's Mm. having the confidence to be able to say, I'm not okay. Do you know what I mean? And it's having... The confidence to be able to not just articulate academically, but to be able to articulate your own emotions and your own feelings. And, mm. um, you know, we, we talk about and we look a lot, of, you know, not only when you're looking at leadership and managing, but also when you're looking at your own social and emotional side of it and how your own well-being is very much determined by your ability to negotiate your own, the, the way that you articulate, the way that you present the situation as it is. And it's very much a case of that we need our students we need our mature students we, we basically need anyone that we are teaching no matter what setting to be able to talk openly and honestly without fear of without fear of almost like failure from it without and it's it's that confidence that has to be nurtured and, and that confidence can be nurtured through the explicit understanding of look these are the different tones and it's you know it's little things isn't it by being able to do something as simple as to acknowledge the fact that there's different types of happy and there's different types yeah. of sad and it's not just this isn't just a skill that's like you know that should be taught in primary school at all this is a skill that even to this day we need to acknowledge because sometimes that's where frustration comes comes from frustration and this aggression and this inability to control oneself comes from a breakdown in communication and whether that breakdown in communication is with someone else or whether it's with your own inner dialogue or in a monologue it's it's very much a case of just just being able to take a step back from it all and go okay let's try and formulate this let's try and and discuss this let's try and explain it and it's it's very much it can be your biggest weapon in supporting yourself and others. Honestly, Sarah, it's so incredible. It's so fascinating hearing your your, your view on Oracy. It's incredible. We've just got our final ad break and we'll be back for our last five minutes.
Welcome back, everyone, to Shrab Khan here with the wonderful Sarah Davis. Sarah, in a nutshell, how can we describe Oracy? A lot of it is going to be based on their ability to communicate. And a lot of it is going to be based on their ability to express the best side of them or the side of them that they want to express with intention. And it's just it's so important to get that right. And And yes, OK, we might be very much in this world of academic river and data-driven progress. But actually, a lot of that data or a lot of that progress will come with the confidence that's brought around by the ability to just have a discussion. Absolutely, absolutely right. I think one thing I've realised more and more is that there's such a big division between infant school, primary school, secondary college. Mm. Why do we not see it as one sort of like institution together trying to prepare the child and adding parts to child's life so we could prepare them for for life outside of school and obviously is absolutely vital i think that you're right it's that confidence to go out in the world express themselves have discussions talk to people i'll be honest with you i never really had many experiences of interviews now i've sat many interviews it's made me feel a bit more ease with the expectations. And as you know, nothing compares to a teaching interview. You know what they're like, mm-hmm. don't you? Do I do a student panel, a SLT panel, a faculty panel? Yeah. You teach a lesson. Some I've heard of school, you have to do duties. You have to, it's all sorts, isn't it? It's unbelievable the amount of stuff that teachers have to do simply to, to get through to the next stage. But again, preparing young people to have confidence even to apply. Sarah, even small things like filling an application form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and th- it's so unbelievably true the there's so much about and we we talk about this don't we we talk about okay and, and student every single year the same dialogue takes place doesn't it well why do we need to know about this like <laughs> well, and what what's been really really good whilst i've been doing all of this investigation is i've actually found that i've been changing my own narrative and i've been changing the own like you know my own way of presenting things and mm-hmm. and understanding it so you know things like for us one of the language one of the language assessments is obviously focused on transactional non-fiction writing and it's very much a case of all right well how I'll lead in that now how I approach that for the first time is all right well when might you write something mm-hmm. do you know what I mean and it sounds very very basic and something that we do quite often anyway but it's about really honing in on the focus of that when might we write something when might we actually you know what does a personal statement look like what does a CV look like as well you know what kind of questions might you get asked in an interview why would you respond in such a such a way and, and you know you can people worry about why well you know because if you do that well that's that's the job of PSHE that's that's what that is for and it's actually it's not because you can tie it into anything like well why why would you put that piece of information in there what kind of you know evidence would you get out of it and it's about showing the validity your own abilities and capability you've got to be able to with interviews especially you have to be able to exhibit the best part of yourself or to be able to really demonstrate the skills that you want to get across and it's such a hard skill to master absolutely absolutely sarah we could talk all day long we could talk all day long about this i think it's there's so so much so much in there isn't there so much individually sarah for our audience okay where can they find you uh where can is your book on Amazon? Are we going to give Jeff Bezos more money? Where's your book? Where's your book on? <laughs> so it is on Amazon. It's on um, it's on Jonka and it's on Amazon. Um, 
It's available on both of them. Obviously, I'm on Twitter as well at sjdavies87. I do have a blog on there, which is the realistic teaching. I'm currently doing that thing where I'm I'm, I'm looking at marking in more detail at the moment as well. Mm. So there's a I'm really interested to find out people's take on marking. And yeah, no, that, that you, I think that's everywhere that I am. Really, that's everywhere that you can find me. Fantastic. Uh, no, honestly, to our audience, you've got to follow Sarah. She's got some incredible ideas. Just a really approachable person. I think that's what's really vital. No, Sarah, it's been fantastic having you in Anti-Small Talk. I can't wait for our audience to hear this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Anytime. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Shweb Khan here with Sarah Davis at Anti-Small Talk in our collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio. If you wish to be part of Teacher Hug Radio slash Anti-Small Talk, you can find us at Anti-Small Talks on Twitter or www.teacherhug.co.uk. Thank you and have a good day.